Section 21 of The History of Minnesota and Tales of the Frontier, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Johns, Salt Lake City, Utah. The History of Minnesota and Tales of the Frontier, Part 2, by Charles E. Flandro. Section 21. Muscular Legislation. My attention was at once arrested by a short editorial under the caption of Gold Lace Lawmaking, which recalled an amusing incident in my experience that occurred in 1856. The editorial said, When the lawmakers of the province of Manitoba met at Winnipeg, the occasion was something to impress the voter. The Royal Canadian Dragoons paraded, and the 13th Field Battery roared a salute. Mark the contrast. On one side of the line, ceremony, gold lace, and honor. On the other, nothing but a few clean collars and a campfire of the bobby. It is not my intention to discuss the question of which is the better method, but to relate an incident which will cast some light on the views people of the two sections take of legislative etiquette and ceremony and the slight effect such ideas have on the practical subject of legislation and the conduct of the legislators. In the year 1856, I was elected by the people of the Minnesota Valley to the Territorial Council, which corresponds to the state senate under our present political organization. At the same election, a neighbor of mine, George McLeod, was elected to the House of Representatives from the same district. George was a Scotch-Canadian who had passed his life in that part of Canada where French is the dominant language, and it had become his most familiar tongue. He was a giant in build, being much over six feet in height and correspondingly powerful. He was red-headed and, although well-educated, preferred his fists to any other weapons in argument and generally carried his points. He was fond of good horses boasted of his skill as a hunter, and possessed all the requisites of a successful frontiersman. He added to these accomplishments an extensive knowledge of Scotch poetry and a varied repertoire of choice songs, which he sang on all appropriate occasions. On the whole, George might be classified as an all-around good fellow. Another attribute which I must not forget to mention was that he was the brother of one of our most distinguished first settlers, Martin MacLeod, who was a member of the First Territorial Council, which convened in 1849, and also the brother of Reverend Norman MacLeod, a plucky Presbyterian preacher, who settled in Salt Lake City in the 50s and preached the Gentile religion when Mormonism was at its height and its disciples were in the habit of killing people who differed from them. After the excitement of the election was over, George naturally began to reflect upon his exalted position, and, of course, all his conclusions were reached from a Canadian point of view. Feeling a little doubt on some questions, he decided to consult me, supposing I was more familiar with the American way of doing things than he possibly could be. So one day he came to see me on the all-engrossing subject. We found each other in the regulation costume of the country, which consisted of blue flannel shirts, cheap slop-shop trousers, 
Red River moccasins, and the whole finished off with a scarlet Hudson's Bay or a variegated Pembina sash, all of which was picturesque, but carried with it no semblance of pretentious aristocracy. I welcomed George with great cordiality, and he at once opened his budget. He said, Flandreau, giving my name the full French pronunciation, when we get down to Parliament, we will have to set up a coach. My surprise may be well imagined when I tell you a journey of a hundred miles on foot was to either of us no unusual event, and that neither MacLeod nor I had been the owner of a boot or a shoe for several years. I, however, restrained my astonishment and asked, What makes you think so? His reply was that it was entirely inadmissible for a member of Parliament to walk from his hotel to the Parliament House or to ride in a public conveyance. The question of British or Canadian etiquette flashed upon me and explained MacLeod's meaning. But it required an immense effort on my part to control my laughter when I had fully taken in the ludicrous features of the proposition. I would no more have given way to my inclinations, however, than I would have yielded to the same desire when some ridiculous event happens at an official Indian council. The picture of a coach with liveried coachman and footman driving up to the door of the old American house in St. Paul, and two half-savage-looking men, shod in moccasins, climbing into it, to be transported three or four blocks to the old capital, with a gaping crowd of half-breeds and ruffianly spectators, looking on in amazement, passed before my mind, and made me wonder what would be the result of such a phenomenal spectacle. But I simply said, we had better wait until we get there and see what the other fellows do. But there is one thing I can promise you, and that is that our district shall not fall behind any of the rest of them if it takes a coach and six to hold it up. When we arrived at the Parliament, of course, MacLeod's ideas of etiquette and good form met with a rude check, and that was the last I ever heard of the subject. But it was not the last I heard of my colleague, his convivial and belligerent characteristics led him into all sorts of scrapes. He was, however, usually quite competent to take care of himself, and we each followed our own trails without interference, until some political question of more than ordinary interest came up in the house, and an evening session was agreed upon for its discussion. MacLeod was to speak on the subject, and he spent nearly all day in preparation, which consisted in dropping in at old Calder's, a brother Scotchman, about every hour and taking a drink, so when the time arrived he was loaded to the guards with inspiration. In the old capital the halls of legislation were on the second floor, the house on one side and the council on the other, with an open hall between them, and a stairway leading up from below. The height between the floors was about sixteen feet. It had been arranged that a keg of whiskey should be put into the council chamber to be presided over by the sergeant-at-arms of the council, and who was an enormous man, larger even than MacLeod. The hour arrived, a large party attended the debate, among whom were John Rollette and I, many ladies also gracing the occasion. MacLeod spoke, and after he had finished he sauntered over to the council chamber to refresh himself. While the custodian of the keg was getting him a drink, MacLeod asked if he had heard his speech and how he liked it. The sergeant ventured a not very flattering criticism on some remark he had made, 
when george slapped him viciously across the face with a pair of buckskin gauntlets which he held in his hand he had hardly struck the blow when the sergeant seized him and rushed him across the hall to the railing around the staircase reaching which over macleod went backwards to the bottom sixteen feet below with a crash that could be heard all over the building in a moment or two my friend joe roulette came running breathlessly to me and gasped out hiawatha hiawatha the name he always called me macleod is dead i sprang to my feet and rushed downstairs where i found macleod laid out in a lounge in the office of the secretary of the territory with dr laboudier a french member from st anthony endeavoring to pacify him the conversation ran as follows doctor george mon ami ne bouge pas t'es la brasse cassée macleod fish moi la pas and pu barber la brasse en un écossais ane pu pas de lucasser which translated would read george my friend be quiet your arm is broken stand aside you may bend a scotchman's arms but you cannot break them poor macleod's right arm was broken badly which laid him up until the end of the session a short time after the legislature had dissolved george was standing in a saloon on third street with his right arm in a sling and a glass of whiskey in his left hand which he was about to drink when who would walk in but the big sergeant without a word george discharged the contents of his glass into the face of the sergeant and prepared for battle crippled as he was but the interruption of friends and the chivalry of the sergeant prevented an encounter and so ended the legislative career of the gentleman from canada whether it would have terminated otherwise had we set up our coach and livery and changed our moccasins for patent leather boots i leave to the decision of the reader he went with general silby's command to the missouri where i believe he remained end of section twenty one